Hello, this is Father John Arthur, or Associate Pastor at Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. In my last two programs, I went over the first article of the Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. Today, I am going to go over the second and third articles of the Apostles' Creed, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, and that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. These talks are all based on the Catechism of the Catholic Church in brief statements, the summaries at the end of the sections. If you'd like more information, it's available online at vatican.va, the papal website. The name of Jesus signifies God who saves. The child born of the Virgin Mary is called Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. St. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. There is not under heaven another name given to men by which we can be saved from our faults. Acts of the Apostles chapter 4, verse 12. God who saves. That's what the name Jesus means. Okeechobee means big water. The trees in California that are so large, Sequoia, named after our great local hero, the Indian of the Cherokee. Mary received the name to give her son from the angel. Mary was obedient not only in conceiving by the power of the Holy Spirit, but in naming him God who saves, Jesus. The name of Christ signifies anointed one, Messiah. Jesus is the Christ, because God has anointed him with the Holy Spirit and power. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. He is the one who must come, St. Luke chapter 7, verse 19. The object of the hope of Israel, Acts 28, verse 20. Christos, Mashiach. Our word, Christ, comes from those two words, the Greek word, Christus, the Hebrew word Mashiach. They both mean anointed one. We are anointed ones, little a, little o, plural, in the anointed one, capital A, capital O, singular. We are anointed in our baptism, in our confirmation, in the sacrament of the sick, bishops and priests in holy orders. The name Son of God signifies the unique and eternal relationship that Jesus Christ has God as his Father. He is the unique Son of the Father. St. John chapter 1, verses 14 and 18, chapter 3, verses 16 and 18, and God himself. St. John chapter 1, verse 1. Belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is necessary to be a Christian, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8, verse 37. The first letter of St. John, chapter 2, verse 23. In the Jubilee year 2000, we were reminded by our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, and his associate, Cardinal Ratzinger, who's now become Pope Benedict XVI, how Jesus Christ is the only Savior and his church the instrument of his salvation, Dominus Jesus, 
Here we see it very well presented again. Belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is necessary to be a Christian. And the church has proclaimed this even before the Acts of the Apostles, that inspired book of church history, was composed. For Christ the Lord did not say, Go ye therefore, write a gospel, record a program, but teach all nations. And Mother Church did this from the beginning, so often through the witness of her martyr saints. The name Lord signifies the divine sovereignty. Confessing or invoking Jesus as Lord is to believe in his divinity. No one can say Jesus is Lord if he is not with the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. The Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Spirit is Lord. Not three lords, one Lord. The Father is sovereign, the Son is sovereign, the Spirit is sovereign. Not three sovereigns, but one sovereign. We're focusing in these programs on the Apostles' Creed. On Sundays and Solemnities, we pray the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. But here in this brief passage of St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, we have one of the earliest creeds and one of the shortest creeds, Jesus is Lord. For if we believe that, we believe the rest of it. For the Lord Jesus has revealed to us the mystery of the Trinity. The Father and I are one. I will send the Spirit. Go ye therefore, baptize all nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. If we believe Jesus is Lord, we believe everything that Jesus has told us, including the keys entrusted to Peter. Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary at a time established by God, the unique Son of the Father, the eternal voice, that is to say the Word, see St. John chapter 1, verse 14, and the substantial image of the Father, see St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, and Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 is incarnated, taken flesh. Without destroying the divine nature, he assumed a human nature. What he did not assume, he did not redeem. Christ the Lord became like us in all things but sin to save us from our sins at a time when he knew he would come, in the fullness of time, a time prepared for by the prophets of old and countless prayers of Israel. And now our prayer continues as we await his return in glory to judge the living and the dead, likewise at a time established by God. When we are reminded that Christ our Lord is the unique Son of the Father, it calls to mind how we are made adopted sons and daughters of God through the only begotten Son of God, the eternal Son made man, born of Mary. Jesus Christ is true God and true man in the unity of his divine person. For this reason, he is the unique mediator between God and men. See 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, 
and the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 15, and chapter 12, verse 24. Mediator between God and men, because he is both God and man. True God, true man, homo perfectus, a perfect man to perfect all men, women, children, boys and girls of every age. Jesus Christ possesses two natures, divine and human, not confounded but united in the unique person of the Son of God. Here the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the Catechism of the Second Vatican Council, cites an earlier council, that of Chalcedon from the year 451. At that council a letter was read from Pope St. Leo the Great, the first, and it was called the Tome of Leo, and it had this same teaching, not confounded but united, two natures, one person. When the council fathers heard Leo's letter, they said, Peter has spoken through Leo, and Peter still speaks today in the person of Benedict XVI. Before him, John Paul II, in an unbroken line tracing all the way back to that man known as Peter, who received from the Lord Jesus Christ the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What he binds on earth is bound in heaven. What he looses on earth is loosed in heaven. God bless the Pope. Christ, being true God and true man, has a human intelligence and will, perfectly in accord and submitted to his divine intelligence and will, which he has in common with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Here again, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the Catechism of the Second Vatican Council, cites that earlier council, Chalcedon, 451 A.D. We're reminded, not only does the Lord Jesus Christ have two natures, human nature and divine nature, but he has two wills, a human will and a divine will, two intellects, a human intellect and a divine intellect, the one always subordinated to the other. For his divine will and his divine intellect are eternal. A human intelligence like us in all things, experiential knowledge, St. Joseph, what is it to work in a carpenter shop? Mary, how do we get to the temple in Jerusalem? The Lord Jesus grew in grace and wisdom before God and men in his human knowledge, in his human understanding, in his human willing, in his divine knowledge, he is omniscient, as is the Father and the Spirit. In his willing, the divine will, revealed to Moses on Sinai's height, to us in the commandments of God, always subordinated the human intelligence, the human will, to the divine intelligence and the divine will. And blessed are we, when we submit ourselves to the will of God and the knowledge of God, thy will be done. 
The incarnation is therefore the admirable mystery of the union of the divine nature and the human nature in the unique person of the word. Here, the Catechism of the Catholic Church does not use the phrase hypostatic union, but that is the fancy term, if you prefer, to speak about the incarnation. A union of the two natures in the one person who is the eternal word made flesh. In the descendants of Eve, God chose the Virgin Mary to be the mother of his son, full of grace. She is the most excellent fruit of redemption. Here, the Catechism of the Catholic Church cites the Second Vatican Council's Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, Article 103. From the first instant of her conception, she, the Virgin Mary, is totally preserved from the stain of original sin, and she remained pure from all personal sin throughout her life. This is called the Immaculate Conception. Here in Knoxville, we even have a church dedicated in her honor on Summit Hill. Like a check advance cashing place, Mary received the fruits of the redemption, the fruits of the death and resurrection of her son, even before he suffered his death and resurrection in anticipation that he would have a fitting dwelling place for those first blessed nine months in her womb. She is the Ark of the Covenant. Mary is truly the mother of God because she is the mother of the eternal Son of God made man who is God himself. Here, the Catechism of the Catholic Church cites the Council of Ephesus from the year 431. Mater Dei, if you prefer the Latin, Theotokos, if you prefer the Greek. Mary is not the mother of the Eternal Father. Mary is not the mother of the Holy Spirit. She is the mother of God because she is the mother of Jesus Christ, who is true God and true man. Mary remained virgin in the conception of her son, virgin in giving birth, virgin in caring, virgin in nourishing from her flesh, virgin forever, semper virgo, if you prefer the Latin. So says St. Augustine in his sermon 186. Of all her being, she, the Virgin Mary, is the servant of the Lord. St. Luke chapter 1, verse 38. When the church glories in the perpetual virginity of the Virgin Mary, Semper Virgo, it is not a degradation of holy marriage or lovemaking between the spouses. It just highlights the special vocation in Mary's life, which some others have been able to embrace throughout the centuries. There are still, even in 2009, consecrated virgins, those who embrace the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience, following the example of our Lord and Our Lady, who were both poor and chaste and obedient. The Virgin Mary has cooperated in the salvation of men with her faith and her free obedience. Lumen Gentium, Article 56. She has pronounced her yes in the name of all human nature. Here, the Catechism of the Catholic Church cites St. Thomas Aquinas' 
Magnum Opus, his great work, Summa Theologiae, the third part, question 30, article 1. By her obedience, she, the Virgin Mary, has become the new Eve, the mother of the living. Mary is the mother of all those who live in her Son, the Lord and the giver of life, one with the Father and the Spirit. Eve, the mother not only of all those who live, but all those who die, since death is a consequence of original sin. Mary's obedience has untied the knot of Eve's disobedience. Christ is the new Adam. No one forced God to create us, no one forced God to redeem us, and likewise God did not force Mary to cooperate in his plan of salvation. She cooperated with his grace freely, and the truth has set us free, and she gave birth to truth incarnate. She nourished him not only for those nine blessed months, but all his days, even to the point of standing at the foot of his cross. And since his ascension to the Father's right hand, she was with the church in the upper room when the tongues of fire descended, the great gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. And in her assumption, she is still with the church, interceding for us in heaven. All the life of Christ is a continual teaching. His silences, his miracles, his gestures, his prayer, his love of man, his predilection for the small and the poor, accepting to totally sacrifice on the cross for the redemption of the world. His resurrection, these are all actualizations of his word and the accomplishment of revelation. Here, the Catechism of the Catholic Church cites Catechesi Tradendi, Article 9, the handing on of catechesis, the echo of the teaching of the apostles. What Jesus says and what he didn't say, what he did and what he didn't do, all of this teaches us the way of life in him, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Now it is our task to go out and do the same. We are to continue the mission of the Lord even until he should return in glory. St. Paul exhorts us, inspired by the Spirit, to make up what lacks in the sufferings of Christ. Christ was never rejected in 2009 until he's rejected in us. If we present his saving truths, and people reject us or mock us or persecute us, then we are those blessed of whom he speaks in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when men revile and persecute you and utter every false slander because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And the one who spoke these words is our Savior, and he is trustworthy. He neither deceives nor can be deceived. May we be likewise without guile. The disciples of Christ are to be conformed to him until they are such that he is formed in them. Galatians chapter 4 verse 19. This is why we are assumed into the mysteries of his life, configured to him, associated to his death and his resurrection, 
in waiting to be in his kingdom. Lumen Gentium, Article 7. We are conformed to Christ by his grace, conformed to him in his sufferings, and we long to be conformed to him in his glory on high. And so we pray, thy kingdom come. Shepherd or wise man, no one can attain to God down here except in genuflecting before the crash of Bethlehem and in adoring hidden in the weakness of an infant. Here we have another countercultural passage of faith, statements of faith. How often are the weakest discarded? Abortion on demand, euthanasia, weakness despised. But our Lord did not despise weakness, becoming like us in all things but sin to save us from our sins. Here we are reminded that the Lord Jesus did not just come for the wise and the wealthy, represented by the Magi, nor did our Lord only come for the low and outcast, the ignorant, represented by the shepherds. Christ our Lord came to save us all, rich and poor, lettered or not, all of us called to bow down, to make ourselves low before the great God who was born in Bethlehem. By his submission to Mary and Joseph, also by his humble work throughout the long years in Nazareth, the Lord Jesus gives us the example of holiness in the hidden life of the family and of work. Imagine the all-powerful, the all-knowing God submissive to human beings, to Mary and Joseph. Time to go to bed. Time to eat your Brussels sprouts, or whatever the vegetables of the day were. Take out the garbage. The Lord Jesus submitted to them. And even now, when we call upon him in prayer, two or more gathered in his name, when the priest calls down the Holy Spirit at the Mass, and invokes the words of Jesus, This is my body, this is my blood. Even still, our Lord is humble, and he comes. Shouldn't we likewise be humble? Shouldn't we likewise be submissive to the holy will of the holy God, that we might be his holy people? Shouldn't we be diligent in our labors, and anxious that our family life conforms to that of Nazareth. Let us pray in a special way for all families who are struggling, not only in the home but at work, that God might be glorified wherever we are by all that we do. From the debut of his public life at his baptism, Jesus is the servant, entirely consecrated to the redemptive work that he accomplishes by the baptism of his passion. The baptism of the Lord has recently been represented to us in a special way through Pope John Paul II's Mysteries of Light of the Holy Rosary of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Here we focus not only on the baptism of the Lord, but the wedding feast at Cana where he worked his first miracle and raised marriage to the dignity of a sacrament amongst the baptized. Here in the Mysteries of Light, the public ministry of the Lord, 
We have his proclamation of the kingdom and the call to conversion. In these mysteries of light, we have the transfiguration, where he allows his glory to shine forth, even as his grace is to shine forth through us. And the last mystery of light of the Holy Rosary is the institution of the Eucharist at the Last Supper as a prefiguration and as a continuation of the one only sacrifice of the cross, his passion. So the baptism with John in the Jordan prefigures the baptism in his own blood on Good Friday. All of this redemptive work of the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. The temptation in the desert shows Jesus, the humble Messiah, who triumphs over Satan by his total adhesion to the design of salvation willed by the Father. Jump off this temple. Bow down and worship me. Turn these stones into bread. None of these temptations or others ever swayed our Lord. May we be strengthened by the holy word of God in Scripture and the word made flesh, our Lord himself, to resist the temptations we struggle with, we face day by day. Let us have recourse to the powerful word of God in our lives, that we might resist the father of lies and all his prompts and all his empty promises, rebuking him in the powerful and holy name of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of heaven has been inaugurated, that is established or begun, on earth by Christ. It shines in the eyes of men in the world, in the word, in the works, in the presence of Christ. So says the dogmatic constitution on the church of the Second Vatican Council, Lumen Gentium, Article 5. The church is the seed and the beginning of this kingdom. Her keys are confided to Peter. You are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. These words so dear to the hearts of every Catholic. Let us pray in a special way for the Bishop of Rome, that he will strengthen and confirm us, his brethren, in faith. The transfiguration of Christ has for its end, its goal, to fortify, to strengthen the faith of the apostles in view of the Passion. The Lord Jesus knew how terrible it would be and how the apostles' faith would be shaken and tested. So as an antibody, as a remedy, as a strengthening, he revealed his glory. He ascended on the high mountain, St. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. This ascent prepares for the ascent of Calvary, Christ, head of the church, manifests that his body tell this and beam it in all the sacraments, the hope of glory. See the letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 27. Jesus voluntarily ascended to Jerusalem, knowing all that he would die a violent death because of the contradiction of sinners. He who is a sign of contradiction, as Simeon foretold. See the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 3. No one forced our Lord to mount the wood of the cross. No one forced our Lord to climb Calvary's hill. He has the power to lay down his life and to take it up again, and he has. Thanks be to God, for it is our salvation. The entry of Jesus to Jerusalem 
manifest the coming of the kingdom, that the Messiah King, welcomed into his village by the children and the humble of heart, he goes to accomplish by the Passover of his death and of his resurrection. See the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 7. This triumphal entry into Jerusalem is commemorated each year on Palm Sunday, Passion Sunday, during Holy Week. May all our weeks and all our days be holy and pleasing in the sight of Almighty God, by His grace, to His glory. Until next time, God bless you.